Okay, Jesse, last episode's thrill killings were totally maddening. What's the story this time? The roadside murder of a young father turns into a real whodunit in 90s era coastal Connecticut. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse, Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about dirty deeds, fateful greed, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying this show, pretty please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show and become my favorite person. <laughs> Sorry, Andy. You've been replaced by all the nice reviewers. I know that I'm always temporarily replaced by the nice reviewers, but you always come back. (laughs) I do. I'll always come back to you. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. This week, we are so excited to shout out my other set of new favorite people, our new patrons. Wow, you've got so many favorite people. (laughs) There's like a whole list. I'm sorry. You'll get bumped up again eventually. (laughs) Alicia T, Lori M, and Christina D, Carrie P E, Andrea T, and Gail D, Jennifer C, Dana V, and April D, as well as Tammy W and Eliza R. Welcome, everyone. Wow. We've got another crazy case. On Love Murder today, I do think I did get a recommendation, at least one, if not more, for this case. And this is also a situation where sometimes when I'm trying to fill out our schedule and and take a look at what kind of cases I want to dig into, I start with an author that I know really delivers every single time. And the author whose book I'm using this week is M. William Phelps. Yes, classic. I love M. William Phelps so much. I'm not going to tell you guys the name of the book yet because it could potentially give some things away as well as the shows. But I actually love M. William Phelps so much when he's on like investigation discovery type shows. He just makes my heart sing with glee because he's really funny and he get, he's like blunt and to the point. There was a show that I'll talk about later that aired as recently as last December and he's very professional and kind of subdued in it. And I kind of miss like the... Frosted Tips, like, version of (laughs) William Phelps. Yeah, the sassy version. But he's great no matter what he does. And this book is no exception. It is, like, clocking in at a little over 500 pages and was truly a deep dive. So without further ado, I think we should dive right in. Let's deep dive right in. A little after 7 p.m. on March 10th, 1994, Witnesses driving along the half-mile Rocky Neck Connector in East Lyme, Connecticut, came across a confusing scene. This connector is basically a short road that's off exit 72 of I-95, which people who live on the East Coast or like especially like the New England area will definitely know the I-95. And there's an amazing album by Ida. That has a song called really? I-95, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not familiar with that one, but definitely go check it out, guys. 
where this exit is, it's in Connecticut and it leads to Route 156. But basically, the only people who would be in this area at that time are people who had just taken the exit. So it's not exactly desolate because there's probably some people that are trying to connect from I-95 to Route 156, but it's not a very overly trafficked place as it is. It's next to a state park, it sounds like. So it's kind of a, a random area. So the first couple on the scene noticed at first that there were two cars on the side of the road. One was a light blue colored vehicle, and it looked like it was being driven by a tall, lanky man because they saw this man get back into the car. Okay. And the other car was a 1981 Pontiac Firebird. Wow. Yes. And this is, I mean, it's pretty old even back in 1994 because we're talking about a 13-year-old vehicle at this point. And the Firebird's driver's side door was open and only steps away, there appeared to be a young man lying in the road. So the car's approaching and they see this tall man get back into the light-colored vehicle and everything's happening so fast that they weren't even really clear on what kind of vehicle the second car was. And then the vehicle like hits the road and the witness said it was like a bat out of hell. The car's flying. So they're like, okay, so maybe the second car has something to do with it. And um, this couple was interviewed for Emily and Phelps' book, and they chose to go under an alias, which is why I'm not using their names. And they had their three-year-old son in the back seat. And so she's like, follow the car, because I think that maybe they just hit that guy. Like maybe something happened because that man's laying in the road. And of course, her husband was like, are you insane? Like we have our child in the car. We're not going to go on a car chase. But let's pull over to help this guy. And at the same time, while they're pulling over to figure out how they can assist this man who's lying in the road, another car actually came over the hill at that point. So now there's two witnesses or two cars that are witnessing whatever's going on here. And they're really not sure what's going on here at the beginning. So they did step out to try to assist this man who looked like he was in his 20s, who wasn't moving. And... At first, they could not tell exactly what was wrong with him. But then it looked like blood was starting to seep out from underneath him. Mm. And so they weren't sure if he had been hit by the car. It didn't appear like his Firebird had been in a car accident. There wasn't any obvious damage to the car. So they're like, did he get out to get help or to speak to somebody and then get hit just his physical person, not his car? Yeah. Did he maybe have a medical emergency? Was this something where he pulled his car to the side of the road and he got out because he was having a seizure or like he was having an aneurysm or something was going on and then he just collapsed in the road? They just really didn't know at this point. So they both ended up calling 911. Okay. And when the emergency responders arrived on the scene, they could tell that this man was already dead. That whatever had killed him, unfortunately, had succeeded. He was deceased. There was no help to be had at this point. And the detectives arrived on the scene very quickly after that, and they determined that it had not been a medical emergency. And while he may have been accidentally run over after his death, that certainly was not what had caused his death because he had been shot five times. Whoa. And the way that the bullets had gone through him, which were 
predominantly through his back, it sounds like. They had basically crossed through his heart and lungs, and he had likely drowned in his own blood. Jessica. So this was a brutal shooting. Now they do have the subject that the the first witnesses on the scene saw this tall, lanky man getting back in this light-colored vehicle Mm -hmm. and taking off. So they're thinking potentially that man was the shooter. And he was clearing the scene when he saw the headlights approaching from the other car. But they don't know why this man would be killing the other individual who's laying in the road now because obviously they he wasn't carjacked. No one stole his car. It didn't appear like anything was stolen. I was going to say, but like, how would you know? Yeah, they're looking into it. Maybe there's like some sort of drug deal gone bad. They're not entirely sure what's happening right now. But the first key is to identify the victim, obviously. And one of the officers on the scene actually knew who he was. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. That's probably always like a horrible nightmare for cops. Well, it wasn't somebody that this officer knew like from his own family or like a friend or something. It was somebody who was kind of well-known in the area and had a reputation as being kind of It's kind of hard to say. Like, he didn't have necessarily a bad reputation, but he was known to frequent the bars, let's say. And he had been at the center of some domestic disturbances. Okay, so cops knew of him, which probably isn't a good thing. Cops knew of him, yeah, yeah, which is not great. (laughs) The victim was Anson Buzz Clinton. He was a 28-year-old father on his second marriage who worked as a certified nurse's assistant while also moonlighting as a tow truck driver and a male exotic dancer. Um, excuse me? <laughs> yes. Buzz was a busy guy. He was very entrepreneurial, let's say. He was definitely figuring out his path in life, and he was considered a pretty good-looking guy who apparently had some moves. So one of his part-time gigs was heading up an all-male review ladies' night. Of male exotic dancers. So you said nurse. He's a CNA, a certified nurse's assistant. Tow truck operator. Tow truck operator. He had his own tow truck. And also a exotic dancer. Okay, I was just wanting to make sure that I got that right. He's a jack of all trades over here. If those are three trades that you can be a jack of. Wow, I'm impressed. He was a pretty industrious guy. Well, Buzz was indeed a loving son and sibling. He hadn't always had the best track record in relationships. And that's of the business or romantic kind. Okay. The police would be forced to wade through a sea of suspects. An angry ex-wife, a current wife who suspected maybe infidelity, an alleged mistress and her spouse, former business associates and people who Buzz owed money to, not to mention an ongoing feud with his wife's family. With so many possible motivations and so little forensic evidence, the road to justice would threaten to go cold. Until months later, a tip would lead investigators down a wild rabbit hole of drug use, swinging and swapping spouses, rampant infidelity, disapproving parents, sordid secrets, surprise pregnancies, and a diabolical murder-for-hire plot. This dirty trail would wind its way finally back to the culprits, and not one, but two flights from justice and betrayals galore. 
This is the tragic tale of Buzz Clinton. Wow. That's a lot. I think that's the most things that you've listed ever at the beginning of an episode. Just when you think the story is going to zig, it zags. That's going to be the name of the game today. And then he shows up somewhere and you're like, are you going to be a nurse or are you going to exotic dance right now? Or are you going to be a sexy nurse? (laughs) Which nurse are we going to be today? Yeah, this story is pretty crazy. It has all of the elements of a soap opera, like a really like like R or X-rated soap opera. There is going to be a warning that I have to give you towards the middle slash end of this episode about some of the most um, disturbing love letters we've ever discussed on this show. This is perfect for Valentine's Day. It is. Is this going to be our, no, this is, I think, the week before Valentine's Day. It is, which is perfect. Yeah. So yeah, get ready for Valentine's Day because we have some romantic gestures that are mentioned that I really hope none of you are thinking about giving to your loved one for Valentine's Day because it takes a lot for my uh, breath to be taken away. But I'm pretty sure I was listening to this audiobook while I was on the treadmill at the gym. And my face was like, oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. And then I was like, can I say that on the show? And I was like, I'm going to anyways. I'll just give a warning before I do. Yeah, I think we're R-rated. We're definitely rated explicit. So sorry to all of you guys who have children. And I think my cousin's wife, when we first started, told me that she was trying to play this. She was like, Alexa, play Love Murder. And they're like, no, we can't because of your settings. Child settings. Yes. Can't play that horrible podcast. So apologies (laughs) to all the mothers out there that cannot play this around their children. But also you're welcome. You're welcome. I guess get some AirPods. Treat yourself this Valentine's Day to some AirPods. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, so this is a very insane episode. And when I actually got into it, because I chose it mostly because of M. William Phelps, I realized that the case sounded kind of familiar. And I did Google it. And it turns out that this was Small Town Murder's 27th episode. This was the case for them. You love them. And I do love them a lot. In fact, there's a lot with like... James and Jimmy and James like tells the whole case and Jimmy's like kind of like the Andy. So when we were figuring out the format of our show, I was kind of like, oh, well, Andy doesn't have time to research these stories. So <laughs> so I'll just be James Petragallo and she could be Jimmy Wisman. I'm Jimmy. You're Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But yeah, so I went back and I listened to that. So if you guys are fans of both shows, this is a very, it's like very old for them. I'm sure they're into like the 400s or 500s of episodes now. They are. They're awesome though. I enjoy listening to them. Yeah. I feel like we get along. I do too. Okay. So without further ado, let's go back and talk about Buzz and what led to his tragic demise at the young age of only 28 years old. Anson Clinton Jr. was born on January 7th, 1966. His dad, Anson Sr., was called Buck. So Anson Clinton Jr. was actually a third. And his father, Buck, and mother, Dee, had been married for about a year, but they were still very young. I think that they were both like 19 or 20 years old. They had gotten married, I think, right out of high school. And at the time, Buck, which is, I think, Anson II, the dad, was in Arizona, he had gotten a wrestling scholarship. So while she was giving birth, he was, I guess, finishing out his classes and whatever wrestling tournament he had to do. And they had agreed to name their child Anson Clinton, as was the tradition. 
But his mom, Dee, said, you're going to have to give him a better nickname. And so dad was Buck. And somehow Buzz ended up being Buzz. Eventually, the family settled down in Old Lyme, Connecticut. And many years down the road, they had two more children. They had a daughter named Suzanne and a youngest son, Billy. But I think that Buzz was already 17 years old when his younger siblings were born. Whoa. Yeah, so they had their very early baby. And it's the same couple. And then it it seems like they went from being like really young parents to kind of like what was considered at the time later in life parents, 37 or whatnot. What's normal now. It's pretty normal now, but I I remember even when I was, so I'm born in 84, and I remember going to school in my area, which is rural, and my mom being a mom at 30, she had me at 30, my brother at 32 was considered old. Yeah. So it, it's different nowadays. But he was like a very, very good older brother. He really relished the role, especially Suzanne, his younger sister, just worshipped him. It didn't matter that there was a huge age gap. It was kind of almost like having a fun uncle more than having like an annoying older brother. Buzz was a lively kid who was athletically gifted in gymnastics and wrestling, but he struggled in school due to some learning disabilities he had, including dyslexia. Oh. But his learning disability did not stop him from becoming a serial entrepreneur, which is what we touched on in the intro to this. It honestly seemed like Buzz was a little ahead of his time with his constant hustling and always having side gigs and just doing what he could to get ahead. He worked as an iron worker for quite a few years, which is what his dad did. Okay. So he followed in his footsteps for a little while. But while he was even doing that, he also DJed Andy, which Andy used to DJ on the side. Yeah, he had like an entertainment business on the side. He bought a tow truck and he had a one-man towing business. He was also a trained mechanic. He sold firewood sometimes. And he also worked as an exotic dancer at an all-male review that he apparently set up himself. So it was his idea because there are these ladies' nights at local watering holes and everyone kind of complained that what's good for the gander was not good for the goose, meaning that there was a lot of Strip clubs around where a man or somebody who likes the ladies can go and see a naked lady, but there wasn't, I guess it sounds like there wasn't a Chippendales in Old Lyme, Connecticut yeah, at this time. Yeah, but that's like a universal problem. Most towns it don't is. have a male exotic dancing club. <laughs> well, Buzz was ready to answer the call. He was bringing the thunder from down under before there was thunder from down under, but without the Australian accents. The thunder from Connecticut. The thunder from Connecticut, which is not a phrase we hear (laughs) that often. Yeah. So it was actually his idea to start it. And he was the one, which makes sense if he had some sort of DJing or promotional business before music that he was like finding a way to entertainment in some way. And also made sense why everybody kind of knew him as like a bar guy or a club guy because he had worked in those environments before. So was it a specific club that he would host these nights at or would they rotate around or? There was a name. Hold on. Let me see if I can find the name. And William Phelps called it a gin mill. A gin mill. Yeah. Like it wasn't like because it's a gin mill. Like they don't make gin. It was just like as like an old timey phrase for like a bar, (laughs) which I really liked. Cafe Del Mar is the place. Yes. Some of Buzz's schemes paid off and some did not. So he'd end up back at his parents' house quite a bit. 
which his younger siblings, of course, loved. And he seemed like just such a great big brother to them. Suzanne, his younger sister, is on one of the shows that I watched. And she said he was like a hero to her. This did kind of drive his parents crazy, especially as Buzz could be known to party and was quite popular with the ladies. So it's kind of like you're coming home, but maybe he's bringing girls home too. And you never know what's going to happen with Buzz. His mom, Dee, would later say, Buzz was a complex person and at the same time, very simple. He was not perfect and most of my gray hair I got from him. He always tried to do at least two things at the same time. He could make me smile and he could make me want to wring his neck, often at the same time. (laughs) I used to tell Buzz, there is no expiration date on your birth certificate, so make every day count. And Buzz packed a lot of living into such a short time. He just sounds like somebody that Nathaniel and I always refer to as like a rascal. It's somebody that some people have strong opinions about, whether they love him or they hate him. Or they love to hate him. Or they love to hate him. Or he's like really good with some subset of people and he's really loyal, but like other people can't stand. You know, it's just one of those people that has a personality that is polarizing for a lot of people. So Buzz eventually converted a shed on his parents' property into a one-bedroom apartment. He did all the work himself, so he insulated it and put in plumbing and did the whole thing. And this arrangement seemed to work for everyone a little bit better because he wasn't tromping around the house at God knows what time. No, he was bringing people to the sexy shed. To the, (laughs) yeah, the shed's a rockin'. Don't come (laughs) a (laughs) rockin'. Though Buzz was a good-looking guy who had no trouble attracting female attention, he certainly was unlucky in love. And if you asked his first wife, Lisa, that was entirely his fault. The couple had met through mutual friends in their early 20s and gotten married pretty fast. Lisa would later allege that Buzz was abusive and unfaithful throughout their very short marriage. The troubled union did produce one child, Michael, who was born in 1990, after an acrimonious divorce in which Lisa won full custody of Michael. Lisa did remarry eventually, and she would later say that her new husband was considered her son's father and that he called her new husband dad. So I think that Buzz was ordered to pay some sort of child support, but I do not think he had a very large hand in raising this child at all. I know that later on the detectives and I think Emily and Phelps might have looked into this too, looked into these abuse allegations. And it's really hard to say because the ex-wife had said that she had called the police or he'd been like arrested in Arizona. There's no reports of that. There's no evidence that that's the case at all. And of course, Buzz's mother said that that hadn't happened, but we don't know. This is potentially an issue in his first relationship. But we do know whatever happened was bad enough that they ended up divorced very quickly. And Lisa got full custody of Buzz's only child at this point. Wow. Okay. Yes. Buzz was, however, upset about the loss. I don't know if he was emotionally ready at that time to be a parent, but I know that he felt very regretful that he wasn't a part of his child's life. And at the time that all of the legal wrangling went down around the divorce, he didn't really have a lot of resources in order to fight it. So I think that he thought that if he was ever going to get married and consider being a father again, he really wanted it to be different. As he approached his mid to late 20s, he began thinking more about his future, and that was when he met Ms. Wright in the most 
unlikely of places. Can you guess what Buzz was doing when he met his future wife? He definitely met her at Cafe Del Mar. <laughs> yes, well, he was dancing. Because if you haven't met the love of your life, well, you're only wearing a banana hammock. What are you even doing with your life? <laughs> Doesn't leave too much for the imagination, does it? Well, I guess it depends on guys. I'm all about honesty on first dates. Like, just get it out in the open and see if you're, like, right for each other. And, like, that's, like, some type of honesty. Look at that. Bam. You know what you're getting into. You know the moves. Bam. Bam with that banana hammock right in the face. I also just realized that we are now back-to-back -back exotic dancer episodes, and that was not intentional. I love it. <laughs> they should all be exotic dancer episodes. <laughs> Might need to rebrand the podcast, though. Buzz was dancing at Cafe Del Mar on Ladies' Night in July of 1992 when in walked 26-year-old Kim Carpenter. And it was something like love at first sight or gyration or first conversation. We don't know. Shy Kim had pretty strawberry blonde hair, and she kind of faded into the background. She's not a very outgoing person compared to boisterous Buzz. Now, M. William Phelps compared Buzz to Ricky Martin. That's what he thinks he looks like. I don't think you guys are going to agree. I was struck with him looking kind of like, this is a very deep cut. I don't know, like, which 10 of you are going to know what I'm talking about. But there used to be a reality show called Total Divas, which was all about female wrestlers for WWE. Is this the one with the, like, sisters who got pregnant at the same time that you always yes. talked about while we were pregnant? <laughs> I think they were pregnant at the same time we were pregnant or something. And, and it was I was like, yeah, we're like those twins, the Bella sisters. And there was a guy on it who was married to one of the women. And his name was TJ on the show. He was married to a wrestler named Natalia, I think, Nat. And I think his wrestler name was Tyson Kidd, but he looks a lot like him, but like that guy, but with like John Bon Jovi feathered hair. You sent me so many articles of those sisters <laughs> during our pregnancy. I just want to remind you. I mean, I am done. I'm retiring from commenting on people's looks as far as whether they're attractive or not, because you guys always disagree with me. But it seems like on the outset, they might have seemed mismatched, whether that was that some people didn't think like... Kim was as attractive as Buzz or whether they just had introvert, extrovert personalities. But a friend of Buzz's said to author M. William Phelps, he must have loved that woman because Buzz was a decent looking guy. Being a dancer, he could have had any number of women, but he chose Kim for some strange reason. And his mom would later say, too, that he the next day after meeting her and working that night at Cafe Del Mar, he basically came home and was like, I met the love of my life. This was a very instantaneous connection. When we actually dig into Kim's background, I can actually see why they would be attracted to one another. It seems like they had a lot in common. Kim was born just one month apart from Buzz. They're basically exactly the same age. They both had two other siblings, a boy and a girl. But Kim was the youngest of three siblings and was not as beloved as perhaps Buzz was in his own family, Stop. unfortunately. really? Mm-hmm. Like, it sounds like Buzz was this, like, exasperating firstborn child that always had something going on to his parents. And then he was so much older than his two younger siblings, who were still children at the time that he is 28 years old, and they just loved him. But he was the outlier among his siblings because he was so much older than them. And Kim was different from her siblings for entirely different reasons. 
While Kim's older siblings, Beth Ann and Richard, were high achievers, Kim struggled academically. She struggled to even finish high school. Sister Beth Ann was in law school. Well, Kim worked a series of jobs as a server or she worked at a stop and shop for a little while. So it seemed like Kim was always like just getting by and maybe wasn't always performing up to her parents' standards. And her parents were fairly well off. Her mother had advanced degrees and her father was a military man who had started his own landscaping company. So they had some high expectations for their children. Kim also got married at a very young age, like Buzz had. And in her situation, the man was an abusive alcoholic, and she only found the courage to leave him once he went to prison. Jess, oh my God. Yes, that is a rough first marriage. She eventually got pregnant by a different man who left her before her daughter Rebecca was born. I guess that this guy, John, we're going to talk about him a little bit later, did not want children, was not prepared for children, would have been more amenable to her getting an abortion, which Kim did not want to do. And before they even really made a decision, he left her. It didn't sound like it was a serious relationship. It sounded like it was more of like a fling, and then it got really real and heavy, and he took off before they resolved it as a couple. So she was kind of on her own when she had her daughter, Rebecca, in 1990, and she ended up moving back in with her parents. And he didn't pay child support or anything? I think he was paying child support. Definitely at the time that Buzz was murdered, I think they still had some sort of child support agreement in place for their daughter, Rebecca, because he had eventually taken a DNA test and confirmed. But not at the beginning, because at the beginning, there was no court order or DNA test. So I think that just Kim and her parents and her so sister, Beth Ann, who became a really big part of Rebecca's life, were all pitching in to take care of this child. So you could see some of the similarities between Buzz and Kim. They both are a little misunderstood. They're the same age. They both had disastrous first marriages. And they each also had a child about the same age, even though Buzz wasn't really a part of his son's life. So I think that there was probably some attraction to Kim and her situation because he felt very put out about not being a part of his son's life. And now this is an opportunity almost to be that dad for her child who didn't have a relationship with her biological father. Yeah. There was also the fact that Buzz had suffered from learning disabilities and Kim had a genetic disorder called phenylketonuria or PKU, which means that Kim was unable to properly metabolize proteins and that essentially like if she did not follow a very specific diet or if she ate these proteins, they could become extremely toxic to her. Oh, no. And left untreated, PKU can lead to intellectual disability and behavioral problems. It's unclear how early Kim was diagnosed with this. And we at least know later in life it was difficult for her to afford some of the expensive supplemental food that was required for her to have a healthy diet and healthy lifestyle with PKU. Okay. So it is possible that many of Kim's struggles may have possibly had something to do with her genetic disorder. Wow. I've never heard of that. Uh, yeah. You know what's so funny is that I have, I feel like, heard of it because when I did look it up, I was like, this does sound familiar. The inability to digest or process or metabolize proteins sounded like vaguely familiar to me. 
But yeah, it's, I mean, that's something that's very hard to diagnose. And I'm almost wondering if it was a case that we talked about where they thought the mother was like poisoning her child, but she wasn't. It was actually they had some genetic disorder or something. Like I'm, I'm wondering if it sounded familiar because of a case, you know? Yeah. I also didn't know that it could, obviously, if it becomes toxic, that it can affect you, obviously, physically, but mentally as well. That's wild. I mean, I went to like the Wikipedia page, which isn't always the most reliable, but it usually gives you a good broad strokes. And there's also an, a fear, and I think this is why the Carpenter family, so Kim's family ends up being very, very, very protective of Rebecca, is sometimes there's a link between a mother with PKU and a child having certain learning disabilities or other issues too. So that was something that had to be monitored, and they wanted to make sure that they could give little Rebecca the best care possible. According to those who knew the family, it felt like Kim could do no right and Beth or Beth Ann, the high achieving attorney, could do no wrong. It's like Beth was the princess. She was the standard. She was the good child. Richard was also considered a high achiever. I think he went into business. And some people said that it was a little bit like a Cinderella situation of how the family looked at Kim versus her parents. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like Beth or Beth Ann herself had too much sympathy for her sister. She later said, quote, my parents had problems with my sister her whole life. She has PKU. It leads to intellectual disability, cognitive problems, and sexual promiscuity. So this is Beth saying this. Because she came off her diet, her IQ was lowered to 70. She was a constant source of problems for my parents throughout her life and high school. Now, author Phelps, who published that quote, is also quick to point out that there is absolutely no connection between having PKU and sexual promiscuity. Huh. So this is something that either Beth believed or maybe her parents believed, whatever. This was obviously something that she felt actually had some sort of correlation if she felt comfortable enough to say this publicly. But M. William Phelps said that he actually interviewed people who have PKU and they said that it's a very frustrating correlation <laughs> and that there's no actual tie to it at all. Okay. What is for sure is that the Carpenters' parents, Cynthia and Dick, as well as Beth Ann, did not believe that Kim was fit to be a parent to little Rebecca. And this is before even Buzz is on the scene. And there's really two sides to this story. From the Carpenter's side, they didn't feel like Kim was prepared or responsible enough to be a parent, especially to a child that appeared to be having some lag in milestones. Okay. So I think that Rebecca was... Okay, but I think that they were concerned given Kim's PKU and they were very vigilant about monitoring her medical situation. So they felt like she was irresponsible. They felt like she wasn't holding down a decent job. They would later go on the record to say that Kim sometimes would not come home all night. No, she's living in their home. So this is not a case where, like, the baby's alone. The baby's, of course, with her grandparents or even her aunt. But they were saying that, like, basically she could just, like, go away for a couple days and not tell them. And they just didn't think she was very responsible. Now, when Kim and Buzz get together, the Clintons, Buzz's parents and family and sister and brother who are a lot younger, so still living at home, 
all got to know Kim very well, and she would bring Rebecca over, and they thought she seemed like a lovely mother. Okay. But they thought that her parents were very controlling to the point where if Kim was going to stay the night, and this was even before she eventually does move in with Buzz, she'd be like, well, I have to bring Rebecca home, and then I'll come back because my parents want her home. And they would say, well, we have baby stuff here. We can set it up. You're the mom. The baby's fine here. And she was like, yeah, but my parents will, like, be really upset if I don't get her home. And they were like, well, are you the mom? Like, do you have custody? And she's like, yep. But, like, it just seemed like to the Clintons, like, the family was very overbearing versus if you ask the Carpenters, Kim's family and Beth's family, they were just doing what was right for the baby. Yeah. They don't know the whole situation, the Clintons. Yeah. So I think you can, like, really see both sides here. Well, when... Buzz and Kim got serious. Buzz really didn't like the fact that he felt like Kim's family, they were always putting her down, that they were not trusting her as a parent. He was ready to make the leap for all of them to be a family together. And he was willing to stand up to the Carpenters and say, no, she's the mother and she gets to decide how we're going to operate this family. And Kim had never stuck up for herself before. She kind of always faded into the background, especially when it came to her domineering family and her domineering older sister, especially. So they really don't like Buzz because he's coming in here and making demands about Rebecca and establishing Kim as the parent and themselves as a new nuclear family. And they're saying, we don't know you. We don't know your deal. We don't know you could be a creep. You could be a predator. Like, why are you fighting so hard to have custody of this child? Is it because you're creepy? And when you say they got serious, how long was that actually? I mean, it was fairly quick. So I can totally understand that. A little hesitation. Family members would be like, hey, you have a two or three-year-old child involved in this situation. Don't go so quick with this guy. And they're also looking at it from the outset, which was that she met him while he was working as an exotic dancer. So they knew that. They did know it. And I don't know whether it was like Kim told them or somebody else told them. I have no idea how they knew this. But they told other people that he was just some male stripper who lived in a shed. And the context of all this was that he was studying to become a certified nurse's aide and eventually wanted to become a nurse himself and also had the towing business and worked various other jobs and had been an iron worker for years and years before this. And it seems like that was, like, all they knew about him. Yeah. And as far as the shed situation goes, like, yes, he was living in an apartment that he had converted out of a shed that was already standing on his parents' property. But it was obviously, it's Connecticut, it's winter. It was fully functional, insulated, heated, had electricity. They were telling people, like, we don't even know if it has electricity. We don't even know if it has running water. We don't even know where they're going to the bathroom, kind of, like. They're like homesteading somehow out near his parents' house. And his parents also operated a dog kennel, which was on the property, but not attached to this shed apartment. And so they're like, they're basically living in a dog kennel with a male dancer. And she's like just expecting us to hand over the baby to this new situation. (sighs) There's a lot of judgment flying around all over. And that's exactly what was going on. And the Clinton family is really nice. So they're like, why? They're not even trying to get to know Buzz is from his parents' perspective. Yeah. And they're welcoming 
Kim and Rebecca into their home and they're doing everything they can to make her comfortable. And to their view and what they're experiencing, she seems like a really lovely person and a good mother. Yeah. Who's just struggling to assert herself with her family. Yeah. And exist as a single mother with some sort of genetic disease as well, like which is also just challenging. They don't even really get into it and so hard is that I would find it very difficult to live with a condition where if you eat the wrong things or you go off a specific diet. No, that's wild. Your life is in danger or your cognitive abilities are in danger. Yeah, that's so hard and expensive, I would imagine. Well, and that was the thing is that Buzz and Kim didn't have a lot of money. And I think that that was another thing that was tying Kim, even though she was an adult and a mother, to her parents' situation is I'm sure that they were helping her out with medicine. And they said that she's essentially rebelling and she's going out at night. Hence, she was out at ladies' night when she met Buzz. And I can imagine that she found everything stifling. But from their end, they're like, why is she going out when she goes out? What is she eating and drinking? What You know, like there's like a whole bunch of stuff going on that's a very nuanced situation. And people still have very strong opinions on whether it was right for the Carpenter family to try to protect Rebecca in this way or wrong. Because how old was she at this time? I think when their relationship started, she was two. It's hard. I mean, because obviously they know what's been going on historically with their daughter and what the history has been. And so they're probably projecting a little bit of fear and anxiety into the situation. Yeah. At this point in the story, you can definitely see both sides of what's going on here. And eventually, Beth, who is an attorney, I think she was, she passed the bar in Washington, D.C., Connecticut, and New York. Wow. Yeah. So Beth is very smart. She's helping her parents deal with the situation with Kim basically asserting herself with Buzz for the first time. And they suggested that legally they wanted Kim to sign something that that gave them all medical control over Rebecca. And because you need the guardian or the parent to sign something, like even if my in-laws bring Alden to the doctor, you're supposed to have a sign that says like they can decide medical care. They wanted her to sign something legally binding that said forever, essentially. Like there has to be a reason for this. Yeah, for sure. If you ask them, I'm sure there's very good reasons. Andy, do you know what the secret to a great date is? Um, what is it? (laughs) It's having confidence, of course. And that's why we're so excited to tell you lovers about Lumi whole body deodorant. It's deodorant for pits, privates, and beyond. Lumi is a game-changing whole body deodorant designed by an OBGYN to work not only on pits, but also feet, privates, and everywhere else we might get a little bit of odor. No matter where you use it, Lumi is clinically proven to block odor all day long, all thanks to its one-of-a-kind pH-optimized formula. And they've got over 275,000 five-star reviews to show for it. Isn't it kind of crazy that it's taken this long for someone to come up with a pH-optimized formula? Like, that makes so much sense. It makes so much sense, and I love that it is designed and created by an OBGYN and assisted by a whole team of scientists and clinicians. Yeah, not to mention a female OBGYN. (laughs) Yes, for our female problems. 
I think we've talked about this before, but I'm obsessed with those deodorant wipes. They help me so much on the days that I just do not have time to take a shower after the gym. They help me on my red eyes. <laughs> Which I will be on one with you soon. <laughs> Plus, I love that Lumi is baking soda and paraben-free and, like we said, pH balanced. If you're looking to try Lumi, Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code LOVEMURDER at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% of your starter pack when you visit Lumi Deodorant and use code LOVEMURDER. That's code LOVEMURDER at lumideodorant.com. L-U-M-E-D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T dot com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. One of the hardest things in life is when you know what is good for you, but your brain is getting in the way. Ugh, I totally know what that is. Like, you know what you should do and what's good for you and your body and your mental state, but you just cannot do it. Well, therapy helps you figure out what's holding you back so you can work for yourself rather than against yourself. It can be so hard to overcome racing thoughts and self-doubt and questions and just all of those thought spirals. Everyone has so much going on constantly, and it feels like the world just throws more and more noise our way. Finding space to really process, to learn positive coping skills, it's just so important. Yep, and one of the more important things to know about therapy is that it's not just for people who have experienced major trauma. It's for anyone who wants the space to process and help learning positive coping skills. Yeah, I'm definitely feeling that sometimes when I am like planning out my week and trying to get ahead and there's just something that is getting in the way of me meeting my daily output that I really need to do to get on top of everything for this podcast and for our family. And then I just end the week feeling like a total stress ball. <laughs> so if you want to avoid feeling like a total stress ball at the end of the week and you're considering therapy... <laughs> Definitely give BetterHelp a try. Definitely. Give BetterHelp a try. It's online and designed to fit with your busy life. After filling out a brief questionnaire, you'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And of course, if for any reason it's not a fit, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash lovemurder today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash lovemurder. So at that point, Kim took it to Buzz and his parents were like, what do I do? And Buzz is like, screw that. You're not signing it. And so Kim later said that she told them no, that she wanted to make medical decisions for her own child. And that after that, she was locked out of the house. So she had been living with them. So she's like, I can't get back into my own house. And they said, essentially, and she has the baby. Well, no, the baby was with her parents. Like she went out to do something with Buzz, oh, came home and she can't get into her house. My God. So this starts like World War III because there's also like a back and forth about whether she was actually kicked out of the house, which they say she wasn't, and that she was just like never home. And so if they lock the doors at night, like and she came home one night, that she must have misunderstood it. So someone's lying. Somebody is lying in this situation. And what's happening now is we have a child who's collateral damage in what ends up being World War III because when... She tries to assert her parental rights to get her child and say, we're moving in with Buzz and this is it. This is my life now. And I'm taking my own child that you don't have a legal right to because you're just the grandparents. With Beth's help, the Carpenters filed for temporary custody. 
telling a judge that she's an unfit parent, that he's an unfit parent. I mean, also, he doesn't have custody of his own child, which doesn't look great. So they're saying she's been living with us since she was born. And the mom, just because the mom is having this whim, can't just decide to take her out of our home. You also just can't take, like, someone's baby just because they're having a new relationship either. Exactly. So it's, this is a very complex situation. And they start fighting legally back and forth for the custody of Rebecca. And at some point, there's allegations of abuse being lobbed both ways. So, of course, they're saying she came home and was like, oh, I like, slept with mommy and daddy or something. Or like, and then they're like, why is Buzz sleeping with her in the bed? Or like, does he make her sleep with her in bed? Like, so there's like an insinuation that Buzz is somehow a predator. And then there was another case where... Beth Ann had like a long-term boyfriend who lived in New York City, but they were together for like, I think, four and a half years. And the relationship was so contentious that they had that guy, like Beth's boyfriend, drop off Rebecca at the Clintons at one point just to avoid the Carpenters and the Clintons having to meet. And at that point, Kim and Buzz, she had some sort of diaper rash or something, the baby, and they were like, oh my gosh, like she's being sexually abused and they didn't necessarily they didn't say that it was the boyfriend but it was like the boyfriend who dropped them off and so like they took her to the doctor and the doctors were like no this is like basically diaper rash and maybe she's like a little dehydrated but like this is there's no evidence of sexual abuse so there's no evidence of sexual abuse Rebecca's now an adult she says that to her knowledge because obviously she was a child she never remembers being abused not physically or sexually or otherwise But, like, they're, like, using these accusations. And this is both sides going back and forth. Is Buzz also, like, because obviously I think it's really easy to be influenced by the person you're in love with or you have, like, a romantic involvement with. Is he, like, the one that's coming up with these theories or is it mostly Kim? I really don't know. I don't know if, like, the insinuations about him being a predator started first. And so when... She arrived and had some sort of diaper rash. He was like, oh, they think I'm the abuser? Look at this. Yeah, I'm just curious if there's like a common denominator here. No, I mean, it's just, it's both sides getting dirty. But Kim is involved in both sides. Well, people said that Kim had a personality that was not assertive. And so none of this happened until Buzz got into the picture. And his own mother said that they taught Buzz to fight for what was right. And he grew up that way, very outgoing, very justice-oriented, like, speak up for the little guy. And he was in love with this woman who did seem genuinely sad about her situation. And he was like, well, then I'll speak up for you. And now from the carpenter's perspective, everything was fine. And Rebecca was at home. And yeah, maybe Kim wasn't always number one super mom. But they knew that Rebecca was safe and Buzz comes along and he is all of a sudden demanding these things. He wants to take Rebecca away. So they think Buzz is the problem. And on Buzz's family side, because again, these are all people that are basically living with their parents. On Buzz's family side, they're around Kim and Rebecca quite a bit. The family's very close. They all eat dinner together. They're all around each other. The kids are... I think um, his brother and sister were like 11 and 9. So they're involved in like the baby. It's like a very family situation. This is kind of a feud between the Clintons and the Carpenters. And on their side, they're like, 
the parents are really aggressive, but also Beth, the attorney, is just like filing legal thing after legal thing and always conspiring legally to take custody of a child that, from Buzz's family side, belongs to Kim. So you can see how there's like enemies being set up on either side. Like Beth is like the ringleader on one side of the Carpenter side and Buzz is the ringleader on the Clinton side or at least the other side thinks that. I know it's sad because I feel like if Buzz and Beth got together, they would both be able to get the families to come together. Yeah, but I don't think that that's – I think that Beth was judging Buzz and Buzz probably was responding to that judgment. Of course. Yeah. How are you not supposed to? Yeah, and so that's probably also what he's he's responding to, like a gut feeling of like, are you kidding me? She's judging me. You don't think I'm good enough because I'm just not some attorney? And I think he was also projecting because I think that Kim probably felt like in her parents' eyes she was never good enough because she wasn't she hadn't gone to like business school or law school. And, and so he probably was like projecting upon them the anger that like he felt about the person he loved being slighted by her own family. This is just a mess. And it's, it just keeps getting notched up and notched up. And so originally, like right away after the filing, the courts gave the Carpenters temporary custody because they were like, let's keep the child in the home that it's been raised in until we can really investigate this and figure out what's going on. Which I don't think is a horrible idea. No, because they weren't saying that, like at that time, Buzz and... Kim, we're not saying like, oh, they're abusing her. We have to take her out of the situation. They're saying I'm the mom and I get to decide where my child and myself live. And so basically the court came back after reviewing everything that was filed and the carpenters were alleging just Kim was unfit, essentially. That's why she wasn't being allowed to take her child. And they said if Kim commits to counseling and to court-mandated parenting classes and does everything to the T, then she absolutely deserves to have custody of her own child, which she did. So now I think Rebecca's three years old and it's reversing. So now Buzz and Kim have custody of Rebecca, but it still could be hashed out in the courts. And the Carpenters have mandatory visitation. So they have court-ordered visitation. So they get to see, I think, Rebecca, like, one weekday, night or day, and then, like, one weekend, night or day. On their own. Yes, which is why that boyfriend of Beth's was, like, ferrying Rebecca back and forth because this is getting very contentious, obviously, but it's mandated by the court that the family does have that visitation with Rebecca. In January of 1993, Buzz and Kim married in a small ceremony. And it seems like Kim's mother and Beth did attend, but Kim's father refused to attend because obviously they weren't a fan of this union. And they said that Beth and the mother mostly came because they wanted to be with Rebecca and make sure Rebecca was okay during this wedding ceremony and kind of see what was going on. They also shared the happy news that Kim was three months pregnant. Buzz's family was delighted. They loved Kim and Rebecca. They really felt like committing to this little family was making Buzz a better, more responsible and more mature man. And Buzz wanted to adopt Rebecca. So he wanted them all to be Clintons with this new sibling on the way. But the Carpenters were not done fighting for custody. And in fact, Beth went and found John, the alleged biological father of Rebecca, 
and was like, you need to take a DNA test and they're going to ask you to terminate your parental rights if you are, in fact, the biological father. Because I think that's where this whole promiscuous situation came from, because Beth was like, you have to take a DNA test to prove because we don't even know for real you're Rebecca's dad, which he was. That's like not cool. Older sis. She's like, like digging into the situation. So she's like real meddling now where she's saying, do not terminate your parental rights. Do not let this monster adopt my niece. And at this point, John was engaged to be married. And his fiancee, Trisha, gets involved in this because she had had a hysterectomy and could not have children. And they had pretty much determined that they were going to be child-free. But now this situation is like being dropped in their lap where they're saying, okay, you have a three-year-old. And this is the first time he's ever had like confirmation for sure that this was biologically his child. And furthermore, that child is being abused. So Beth told them, and I'm not sure if it was physically or sexually or both, but she told them in no uncertain terms that Buzz was abusing the three-year-old, which was not true. There's no evidence of that. And that they needed to essentially not only not terminate their parental rights, but potentially fight for... Rebecca for custody saying like, we'll share custody or we'll figure it out because Beth was probably thinking biological parent might have a better claim legally than grandparents and an aunt. So now she's like wheedling her way into this guy's family and getting involved with his wife. And now she later says that they were barely acquaintances. This is absurd. She invited Trisha, the fiance of the biological dad, as her guest when she was accepted into the Washington, D.C. bar. Like, Trisha came down from Connecticut and, like, was part of this. They, like, went on beach excursions. They went out. They became friends. And, in fact, the whole Carpenter family, the parents, too, I think it was Cynthia and Dick, Cynthia and Dick, the parents, all friends with John and Trisha here, to the point where John and Trisha invited the Carpenter family to their wedding. Something weird is going on. Well, I think Trisha was just really thinking, oh, gosh, I'm marrying this guy and there might be a pressing situation in which I need to step up as a parent if there's really an abused little girl here. And people describe Beth as very attractive. She seems so smart. There was something cosmopolitan about her. And it seems like Trisha was a little bit swayed by Beth. Okay. But eventually, through many conversations and picking up on some weirdness from the Carpenters, they were like, we don't want to pursue custody of this child because they hadn't witnessed anything that would display that Kim was an unfit mother, nor were the Carpenters able to give them any evidence Concrete. of this alleged yeah. abuse. Yeah. So they're kind of like, oh, I'm picking up on weird vibes. Said they Homer Simpson back into the bush. You're just kind of like, wait, what are we getting involved with? And how did we end up getting so involved with this family? Yeah, yeah. Which, like, it sounded like John had kind of a fling with Kim, like, way back in the day. And now they're, like, tight with her entire family and not her. Except her. That's the key part. Yeah. So this whole thing is very strange. And Trisha later talked to M. William Phelps. And she explained that when they got married, the Carpenters were all there, obviously, except for Kim, sitting together at a table near where she and her husband, near the, like, the bride and groom's table were. 
And she said that she could overhear the carpenters talking to fellow guests about how much they hated Buzz and about how he was tearing their family apart and how they were going to fight for Rebecca's right. And Trisha said, quote, the entire Carpenter family hated Buzz. Dick said to me that $10,000 could take care of the problem, and I knew he was referring to Buzz and hiring someone to kill him. You know what I was just going to say, too? I was just going to say this is sounding a lot like the Adelsons. Yes, the evil in-laws situation where they're determining that they think they're above the law. Yep. And we're talking about lawyers being involved once again and that they're going to take it in their own hands and make their own decisions about how something should be. It's just like a privilege that is so oblivious that they don't even notice that they're bad-mouthing their daughter's husband at a ceremony celebrating love for the person who had a baby with their estranged daughter. Well, this is what like really essentially made Trisha step away, especially because I think John was more like, what's my responsibility? And if you as my wife and my life partner want to get involved in this, of course I will. Like I'm not going to like step away if you really think that this child needs us. But he kind of left it up to Trisha as the one who would be assuming a lot of the responsibility if they did end up somehow with Rebecca. Yeah. And Trisha was the one who said that it was really weird that she realized they were talking about this at her wedding and that there was like all these little red flags that were coming up. And eventually she did tell Beth, like, we are not going to be fighting for custody. I mean, we won't necessarily terminate parental rights, but like we've talked it over and we know what's best for us as a couple. And it is not getting into a custody battle for a child that doesn't really know John. It's weird that they were invited to the wedding, but it's kind of a blessing in disguise that they were there and she got to overhear that because they... There was like some other little things she talks about too that were like all amounting to that. But the weirdest part is that over the last like year of them having these conversations or whatever, they had gotten really close. Obviously, they were invited to their wedding. And she said that as soon as she told Beth that that was their final decision and they weren't going to change their mind, Beth never spoke to them again. None of the carpenters ever. They can't do anything for her. They are no longer useful to them. Toss them away. And so that's Beth and the Carpenters just never spoke to Trisha and John ever again. Wow. She's on to her next plan. On to the next plan. She's got to come up with $10,000. The joy of the birth of Kim and Buzz's daughter, Brianna, in July of 1993 did nothing to bring the feuding families together. Because now that's Buzz's child. It's like a Clinton child and a Carpenter child. You'd think that this is potentially... In healthy people who are willing to do the best for children in a situation are like, you know what, let's put our shit aside because there was a baby that's born of both of these families that maybe could unite us. No. In fact, <laughs> in fact, Kim and Buzz were supposed to drop off Rebecca on a day that Kim went into labor. And because they wanted Rebecca to meet her sibling very soon after the birth, they like didn't end up dropping her off. They wanted her to stay with the Clintons while they were in the hospital and then be one of the first people to meet the new baby, her sibling. Which you would know that that's normal. Totally normal. And instead of getting a baby present for them, the day after Brianna's birth, they were served a subpoena, basically saying they were in contempt of court for missing a court-mandated visit, even though she had literally just given birth to a baby. That's really gross. Can you imagine? You're like, oh, I want to hear from my family. and. They're like, yeah, you've been served, even though you were in the hospital. 
even though you're in the hospital having birth. just given birth. Man, poor Kim cannot do any right. But it's also so strange because it's like they're fighting so hard for Rebecca, but like there's another baby there too. And it's like, are you just writing that baby off now? Like, well, that's and fine. Kim is their baby and they've written her And Kim's off. their child. Yeah. yeah. And sisters. It's just like this whole thing is so crazy. It just got like weirder and weirder. Like at one point, Buzz acted as Kim's attorney <laughs> because they, they like had a bad relationship with one of their attorneys or like, honestly, they just didn't have a ton of money and they have like two kids they're supporting now. And I don't know if Kim was working or if she was. It was just part-time at Stop and Shop. So essentially, like, I don't know if they could not afford their attorney. But at some point, like, Buzz is going head-to-head with Beth and, like, still somehow coming out on top. I mean, it was getting crazy. And then there was another court that they had about the visitation that had been missed. And, like, technically, Beth and the Carpenters won that one because the court continued to say that they had to have legal visitation with Rebecca, the family, the Carpenter family got to, because I think that they went back into court to fight to say like, why do they have rights when they're so damaging? Why do they have like visitation rights? We'd like to stop those because we'd like to travel with our family or do other things and we can't like always be on their schedule. And the Carpenters did come ahead in that situation. And apparently after the proceedings, there was like a physical fight between Buzz and the Carpenters where. Beth was like, I'm going to kill your ass. And like, he was like lunging at her. And then the dad got involved. So Dick's involved. And Dick was, I guess, I guess this really tall guy. And so like, people are like breaking up this fight. So this is all extremely public. And aggressive. Which is also like so crazy because Buzz was also contributing to this because this is like, he's fighting the aunt and the grandfather of his child, Brianna. And it was just getting messier and messier. But on the Clinton side, even though this is a big storm cloud, They're really proud of how Buzz is operating his life because he had moved out into a two-bedroom apartment that was off their property. So he and Kim now had their own place. They had their baby. They're married. He had stopped dancing at that point. He was also trying to get out of the tow truck business, and he had a job. I think he had a job for a year working as a certified nursing assistant. So on Buzz's family side, it's like he's really getting his life together. It just is this one big negative side is that there's this constant conflict with the carpenters going on. And the Clintons are actually seeing what's going on. So for them to be like, everything is good, they're on the up and up, like they have their own place, they're happy, they're taking care of the kids, like they're actually witnessing what's going on. And the carpenters are removed and just obsessed with getting Rebecca. Exactly. And it was getting to the point where Buzz was calling the police saying that Dick was harassing him and that if anything happened to him, it would be Dick Carpenter who was responsible. And they're calling the police about Buzz. So there's like, this is why when I said the police knew him, there was these domestic disturbance calls that weren't necessarily Buzz was good or bad in them. It was just a constant obvious conflict between these families. So when you say that Dick was a tall guy, was he tall and lanky? Maybe. So let's let's keep keep going there. Jesse, life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earnin. Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. 
Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. We are heading into another gifting season over here, Valentine's Day, birthdays. Somehow there is always something new that costs money and credit card bills that are due. Yep. And of course, don't forget about spring break and travel and then we roll right into summer camps. (laughs) Exactly. And that's to say nothing of all the other just little life things that can get in the way until you get paid. As we always say, Earnin' is a product that just makes sense for so many people. Make Earnin' a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin', I think about financial stability and security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin' today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin' app, type in Love Murder under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Love Murder under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. So yes, this custody battle and family feud raged on through the end of 1993 and the beginning of 1994. And it really was a no-joke situation. So Buzz started trying to think if there could be a permanent solution to this. His father, Buck, had gone to college in Arizona, and the family still had connections there. So they were in the process of finding Buzz a job in Arizona and a place to live because Arizona has extremely limited grandparents' rights. Okay. So if they could manage to settle down there... It would just be better cost of living, first of all, a nice place to live, nice climate. I mean, it's a million degrees, but it's like you're not dealing with like all the winter and everything. Yeah, yeah. it's different, different obstacles. (laughs) Yes, different obstacles. And then best of all, though, they're away from her family and legally through the Arizona court system, at least at this time in the mid 90s, there wouldn't be a lot that her parents could do or specifically her lawyer sister could do. So this was the new plan, and they were really excited about this and what was going on. But in order to get ready for this move, they needed some money, and and that was sorely lacking. So Buzz was at this point during February and March of 1994 trying to sell his tow truck. So on March 10th, when Buzz got a call around 6.15 p.m. that somebody was interested in buying that truck, he was overjoyed. He was at home when he got this call with Kim and their children. And Kim said that he took off to go meet this person. And he was driving a different car to go meet them. And then he was going to take them to where the truck was parked if there was continued interest, it sounded like. But the problem was that Anson Buzz Clinton was gunned down less than an hour after he left the house. And there went his future and the future of his family having a new beginning in Arizona. Okay, so we know that Buzz was shot five times. They also found an an additional bullet, I believe. So it looked like somebody had unloaded a thirty-eight, like the entire round in him or near him. So I think that five of the bullets had connected and there was an additional one that was shot that maybe did not. Yeah. So they now know that he obviously died by homicide with what looks like a thirty-eight as the murder weapon. 
But they don't have a lot more than that other than the eyewitness saying that it was a tall, lanky man in a light bluish colored car. That's it. They don't have a license plate. They don't have any other details. So the first stop, of course, is to talk to Kim, the wife, which they also were aware that there had been this ongoing custody battle. So they knew that going in as soon as they ID'd Buzz. And they said that the way Kim handled the information was odd, but not overwhelmingly so. It just seemed like there was this, like, that there was no big reaction, almost like a this was bound to happen somehow response. To me, it sounded like exhaustion. She can't catch a break. As she continues to discuss Buzz, it sounds like he might have had conflict with more people than other than just her family as well. So it's not exactly an indication that she was aware of some sort of plot or certainly wasn't involved. It just seems like I'm just reading this and I'm like, oh, my God, this girl, this woman is in shock. Like she just and she's probably exhausted because she also reveals to no the police that she's pregnant again and how with Buzz's child. Brianna was only eight months old. Oh, my God. And she's already got a third child on the way, a second that is biologically buzzes. Yeah, I mean. So I was like, if I had an eight-month-old baby, a baby that was uh, soon to turn four, and one in my belly, and we're already just scraping by, and I have been completely alienated from my family, when somebody comes to the door to tell me that my husband's been shot, I would probably be like... Ben Affleck face too. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, no. Like, for I real. can't even respond. I don't even have the energy to like get upset right now because I'm in shock. Yeah, what do you do? And also, if you're actually caring for the kids too, you can't like fully break down. No, I don't know in what environment they told her, but they just said that it was just like, oh, it was just like, oh my god. So they find out now, which was new news, that they're expecting another baby, and they know that. Her family has had issues with Buzz. Now, she did not say anything that would necessarily indicate that she had any knowledge of anything beyond there was obviously a well-documented conflict between her parents and sister and Buzz. So she acknowledged that, but she didn't know of anything that had happened recently that would have inflamed the fight. So they're like, well, who else would have wanted Buzz dead? And at that point, she says, well... I don't know. Do you have time? Pull up a chair because he pissed a lot of people off. I think he might have been having an affair with this woman he worked with and she's married. So check them out. I also know of a guy he was friends with and they got into an altercation about whether one of them had stolen $100 from the other one and it came to blows. There was this other guy that he owed money to, and the guy had publicly said he was going to break Buzz's legs. Oh, my God. There was just a lot going on. Furthermore, Buzz hadn't been paying his child support for his eldest child, and they were hauling him into court for that. So now we have an angry ex-wife who's saying, you're not paying me child support. So that's another person that is angry with Buzz. They've got a lot of leads that they have to follow at this point. But number one, they are still looking at Kim's family because Buzz literally told the police, if anything happens to me, look at Dick Carpenter. Yep. So the morning after he was murdered, they have told the Carpenters they're on their way over and they will be having a sit down conversation with them. And they want to talk to 
Dick, his wife, and his daughter as well. So they arrive and they find that the Carpenters are all there, including son Richard. And also they have Beth Ann's boss because she has been working for a real estate law firm. So the partner who owns the firm, Heyman Klein, is also there. So they're all there. Why? That's a good question, Andy. They're thinking like, whatever, they're just trying to cover their asses. We've already got an attorney in the family and she's bringing in the big guns, her boss, in this situation too. And they said that they have nothing to do with this, obviously. And Dick did have an alibi, but it was his wife. Uh, That's not an alibi. (laughs) But it doesn't also help the police because she can't be forced to testify against him. So even if they're both in on it, they're not going to testify against each other. So it's like it's not even a situation where they can, like, try to get in there even against her will. Yeah. So they're like, well, that's not great. And they do look at what guns Dick has and what guns and weapons are registered to him. He does not have a thirty-eight, So they're still suspicious of him. But while they're keeping that in the back of their mind, they also have to look down all of these other paths that yeah. are very apparent to them. There was literally like three guys that are mentioned. If you watch, there's a show called the most recent one, which was quite good was called uh, Fatal Family Feuds on Oxygen. I mean, it kind of gives something away, but you guys, there's still a twist. It does, but it's like, there's a twist to this whole thing. So you're not going to be shocked. I I also don't think you're already shocked. (laughs) Our listeners are smart people. Yeah, I think you guys have already put two and two together here. So that's why I didn't give it to you like right from the get-go. They kind of break down all of the people that were considered in this and why they end up not pursuing those leads. Like there was... The friend of his that he had gotten in a fight with was actually working at a hotel and he's on the hotel security footage at the time of the murder. There was another guy named Charlie Snyder, the guy who said he was going to break his legs, that I don't think had a very good alibi. And they like went hard at him. They went hard. And it was not Charlie. There was, for whatever reason, they arrived at the decision that they couldn't actually press charges. There wasn't enough evidence that it had anything to do with Charlie. And then there was like a third guy who just did not fit the body type. and. Even though Dick was tall, he was not lanky. And the guy who the witness had seen was slightly younger. It did not have the body type of an older man. It had the body type of a guy in his like maybe like late 20s, early to mid 30s, potentially like maybe up to 40, but not any older. Yeah. So Dick was not the gunman. They were pretty sure. That didn't mean that he wasn't somehow involved. I feel like Beth would have been like, Dad, you can't be the one to shoot him. We need to. <laughs> I find know you someone. want to. You know, Beth's advising them. She's a smart cookie, obviously. And so they're chasing down these leads, and they're hitting dead ends, and they keep coming back to thinking that it has to have something to do with this custody battle, but they can't really connect the pieces here. When all of a sudden, nearly a year later, so this ends up being ten months later. It's in May of 1995. When an informant comes forward with some information, that would be a huge break in the case. Gotta love an informant. Love an informant. This was a woman who was a girlfriend of a guy who was very close and partially involved with the murder and with the actual gunman, is what she's saying. So she's saying, I haven't been able to sleep. I feel sick. I've done a lot of stuff in my life. And I... 
am not a great person always. Like she had some charges for drugs and charges of sex work and stuff on her account. But this is not a case where she was arrested and offered the information like so often happens. She just came in. She came of her own volition saying that she felt sick to her stomach because no matter what good or bad she had done in her life, she wasn't a party to murder and that she never wanted to be. And so she had really struggled with this because she didn't know if her boyfriend was going to also be in trouble, even though he hadn't been the one to pull the trigger. He had advised his friend in the matter, apparently. And she said that she had been witness to a lot of these conversations so she could tell them exactly who was the gunman and how this all went down, at least from the murder perspective. It didn't sound like she knew who had ordered the hit. Okay. But this is the first big break. And she said that the man who was the killer was a guy named Mark Dupre and that he was a small-time drug dealer. And they knew this because he had actually... Funnily enough, Mark had worked as an informant in some narcotics cases, like selling out other drug dealers. So they are aware of who this guy Mark is, but it doesn't seem like he has a direct connection really to Buzz. And she said that he didn't, but she said that somebody had offered Mark money to kill Buzz. So somebody wants Mark dead. She didn't know who, but... She could tell them what happened. So Mark had lured Buzz to the road where he was killed by saying that he wanted to buy the tow truck. So he had apparently been trying to find a time to kill Buzz for two months. Wow. He had had this gun and he was ready to do it and he had had his orders to do it and had never found a good time. And then Buzz put a ad in a magazine or the paper or something saying that he had this tow truck for sale. And that's when this guy, Mark, said, that's it. I can lure him to a relatively desolate area and shoot him and just take off at that point. And now the informant's boyfriend, who is the very good friend of Mark, does also come forward and corroborate this entire story. So this is on on kind of like both their parts at this point that they're telling this story. He said that afterwards he had gone and broken apart the gun or somehow taken it apart and then buried it or scattered it throughout the woods in various parts. So he had destroyed the weapon and gotten rid of it. And he had also sold the car that he was using on the day of the murder. But the worst part of all of this was that he had brought his 15-year-old son, Chris, with him to the murder. No. So that 15-year-old boy was a witness to his father shooting this innocent man on the roadside. (sighs) That poor guy. It sounded like a really screwed up situation too. Like his mother had left Mark because he was violent and unfaithful and she had remarried and she was trying to raise Chris and he got to the point where he was like a rebellious teenager as most kids get to and I don't want to live with you and he's not my real dad and I want to go be with my real dad and he started getting into all this trouble and she finally was like, I can't fight this anymore. If you want to go live with your dad, go live with your dad. And this was like when this all went down. So naturally, they managed to track down Mark Dupre. Yeah. Where? (laughs) Well, they tricked him. They basically had one of the narcotics detectives call him and say, hey, I'm willing to pay you for some information on some of these other drug dealers. Can you come in so we can get a statement? And it'll be all anonymous, obviously, very cloak and dagger. But when he got to the station, they're like, nope, trick ya. You are being suspected for homicide. Why don't you have a seat? 
<sighs> yeah. So then he said, yeah, I don't want to talk about this. Obviously, he's prepared to say, I need a lawyer. I need a lawyer. And they say, okay, well, who do you want us to contact for you? Because we'd love for your lawyer to come down and we can continue this conversation. He said, my lawyer's name is Heyman Klein. Shut the fuck up. Heyman Klein. Well, that name sounds familiar, they think. The homicide detectives. They're like, wait a minute. This doesn't make any sense. Heyman Klein, first of all, is not a criminal defense attorney. He's a real estate attorney. And wasn't that the name of Beth Ann's boss and the guy who was present at the first time we questioned the Carpenter family? Which was so weird. Which was so weird. Just about as weird as a guy who's a known criminal who knows the criminal system because he's already been an informant asking for a guy who's not a criminal defense attorney to come represent him. Unless he's a house and we don't know it. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Well, it turns out that Heyman Klein was not just Mark's attorney. He was also one of his number one customers for cocaine. You are lying. I'm dead. Heyman Klein loved to go skiing. He's hitting those slopes. He was hitting those slopes. Representing homeowners. Doing things. (laughs) One of Mark's best customers. And also, he wasn't just Beth Ann's boss. He was her lover. He was also her lover. (laughs) (laughs) This is so juicy. Oh, we are just getting started with the juice. This is just... The beginning. A little squeeze. Just a little squeeze. Like it is, it's not usual that we get to like the mid end of the episode before you get the juice. We usually lead with the juice, but it is worth the squeeze, my friends, because Heyman Klein is a whole lot of fuck. This guy is <laughs> a nightmare. <laughs> like by the time Beth Ann began working for Heyman's firm in the early 90s, he was already in his early 50s and she was. A cute, redheaded 28-year-old. Hmm. Sure she was. Yes. Now, Heyman had made a killing with real estate and investments in the 1980s, and he was known as a bit of a big shot. He had a big old beautiful house and what appeared to be a thriving business. Heyman was married to his second wife, Bonnie, and he had had, I think, one child with his first wife, and then he might have cheated on her with Bonnie. And then I think he had three more children with Bonnie. So he had collectively four children now. Okay. They had all of the trappings of a wealthy, upper-class Connecticut couple. But behind the scenes, things were not quite what they seemed. Like I mentioned, Heyman was addicted to cocaine. And people who knew him socially said that he was a prodigious drinker. Meaning that whenever they saw him in any situation... He had a glass of booze in his hand. Like, the kind of guy who could go through, like, half a bottle of vodka in one sitting. Wow. You know it goes really good with a lot of booze? Cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Uppers and downers. I mean, he had to balance out all that. Gotta balance it out. (laughs) The cocaine. The cocaine. You guys have probably heard us say the cocaine before, which is a very deep cut to a Lindsay Lohan. Heather McMahon. Yeah. Doing... a Lindsay Lohan impression from early 2000s? Yes. Yeah, yeah. it's very it's a deep. deep cut. Deep cut. So he was drinking a lot. He's doing a lot of cocaine. And then also, we're talking about this lawyer and his wife, and they're in high society, and they have this big mansion in Connecticut. 
And apparently they were also swinging and swapping. He told his psychiatrist that he liked watching other men have sex with his wife, especially people he was in business with. He thought it was part of like a business arrangement, like they'd be having a business dinner and then he'd be like, okay, now you fuck my wife. Is that called quid pro quo? (laughs) Some type of. I also do not know if Bonnie's like really into this, like she's a swinger, so she's down with it. Like this is their lifestyle or whether he's forcing her into this. Like we don't really get Bonnie's perspective. So apologies to Bonnie because we don't know what you're thinking or feeling like this or went through or went through. But it was like kind of like a hidden secret. So there was like this doctor who was friends with them that also spoke to M. William Phelps who kind of said that some people were aware that there was something not totally on the up and up about their relationship. There was rumors of swinging parties where it wasn't just him watching other dudes rail his wife, but like maybe some sort of swapping, couple swapping going on. I'd want to swap right out of that too. <laughs> swap right out of this marriage, please. Anyone else? Is there anyone else I can take? <laughs> Whose keys are these? It's a Range Rover, so let's go. I'm actually, let's just, I'm driving away. I'm just taking the keys, not the man. So we don't know. We don't know if this was like something Bonnie was into or like she's just like saddled with this like creepy dude. We don't know. And Heyman definitely kept secrets from Bonnie as well. But these secrets are not going to remain secrets for much longer after he gets criminally involved in this case. Uh, Apparently, he claimed $2.5 million in losses on his 1991 taxes. And he hired Beth Ann in 1992. So I'm not sure if Bonnie knew how precarious their financial situation was going. So he's broke pretty much, even when he's hiring Beth. He's spending all of their money on cocaine. Which that just goes right up the nose. <laughs> you don't get any. <laughs> There's no long term <laughs> investments in cocaine. It's a really tricky business to be in, <laughs> especially when you're just a consumer. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's sad. So. This cocaine is being supplied, of course, by his future hitman, Mark. And also there were other women. So it sounds like maybe they're swinging some swapping with stuff going on. But he was also having other affairs. But none, none of these other women even held a candle to how he felt about his bright, young law associate, Beth Ann Carpenter. Oh, my God. He had a real, real thing for Beth. So Beth was 28 when she was hired. He, I think, was like 51, 52 when he hired her. Yeah. And I am going to go with, again, she is described in several sources as the stunning, beautiful, like, guys, they talk about her like she's like freaking Nicole Kidman. They're like the porcelain skin, the natural red hair. She's not that great, but she's cute. She's definitely cute. I can see how a certain type of guy would be very attracted to this, especially because he's like, Kind of an old schmuckety schmuck who's like a creeper and, and coked seemed, up, yeah, and coked up. Would you say that it's like AMC Nicole Kidman to like <laughs> eyes wide shut Nicole Kidman? Like, could it be that Nicole Kidman? Yeah, it's also I. I will have to take a picture of like the cover of the book. The cover of the book makes her seem like it's like a illustration, but it's like a really sexy redheaded woman. Look at that. Oh yeah. Again, I am not saying this. I'm saying the book said it. And William Phelps is saying it. People who knew her are saying it. So she's this beautiful young woman. And he is like, you know, paunchy. He's like not doing so great. He's obviously had quite a few years of alcohol and drug abuse. It also seemed like he was the type of guy who's always looking for some sort of thrill. 
And so having this attractive young woman in the office that is looking up to him like a mentor was probably very exciting to him. And he was a serial cheater. So there's little doubt that he probably had hopes of some sort of sexual relationship, even when he hired Beth. Clearly. Yes. And it seems like at some point over the next year or over the next, I don't know, six to 11 months here, he definitely got his wish for sure. But at the beginning, before the sexual affair began, it sounds like the colleagues bonded together about Rebecca's custody fight. So everyone who worked with them in this office said that Beth was a little overly obsessed with her niece's custody issue. And that it was something that would even derail her from her own work. And it was to the point where Heyman actually got involved as the owner of the firm and the senior partner to say, you're supposed to be working on X, Y, and Z. What is going on? And they started bonding over what was going on in her personal life. And before not too long, they were going out for really long lunches and they went to the same gym together. And all of a sudden they're spending all of their time together. And by the time that... She had been there for a year. They were pretty much openly having an affair at the office. So things had moved pretty fast. And he even was talking about a book. I think it's called Damaged or Damaged or something like that, where one of the other colleagues was talking about this book and how good it was. And he's like, oh, that's about me and Beth. And it's literally a guy who is a doctor who is obsessed with his son's fiance, who's like half his age and lets it like derail his life. Oh, my God. Like sexually obsessed? Yeah. People were aware that this was going on. And from the outset, it would certainly seem like this is a creepy, coked-up dude who is preying upon his young employee. But personal missives between the two would seem like maybe at some point Beth had the upper hand as far as their relationship and controlling Heyman. Because he was romantically and sexually obsessed with her to an uncomfortable degree. So this is where we're going to get into the dirty love letters. These are among the most bizarre and quite honestly gross love letters I've come across while researching this show, which says a lot. So he's fully puss whipped. Oh, yeah. There's like one that I didn't even get into where he talks about how he like gets turned on by the smell of her armpits and like her odors. Which is fine. Like, you know, when you're really crazy about somebody, like you love their pheromones. Yeah. But it goes like on. So this is where if you guys have an aversion to um, kinks that are best served in the bathroom, you might want to skip ahead. What do you mean? Let's just say that there's some biological material, not the normal kind happening in this kink. I also love, like, M. William Phelps for this reason because he's, like, breaking down these letters and he's trying to do it in, like, a serious true crime writer type of way. So he's talking about all these different letters from Heyman to Beth Ann about how he's turned on by her skin and her smells and how he's just abandoning all logic and judgment and he's just going to be, like, a slave to her. And then M. William Phelps wrote on, on January 24th, Klein penned one of his most troubling literary achievements to date. Oh, my God. I'm obsessed with (laughs) I'm obsessed with his writing. Indeed, the crowning jewel of love letter writing, a document that would leave absolutely nothing to the imagination. (laughs) 
The letter was rife with sexual fantasies of the most bizarre type. Klein was in the midst, it was easy to tell, of losing the little bit of self-control he had left. Oh, my God. <laughs> By the time Beth Ann was finished reading this letter, she must have known that she could have ordered Klein to kill the Pope and he would have agreed. Wow. Klein opened the letter by saying that he could not survive or live without her. Every second of my day is filled with you. He then admitted that the minute she showed any type of affection for him or paid attention to him in the slightest way, he became a basket case. And that essentially, even though other women hit on him, he was hers and hers alone, even though this man has a wife. This man has a wife and children at home. Also, that's like not hot. Like, give me a little something. Give me a little, <laughs> want a little bit of a challenge. He wrote next that in his mind, the relationship between the two of them was not an affair. It was as his heart had never been tugged or tested. Perhaps referring to the recent plot to murder Buzz, Klein said he would do anything for Beth Ann and to protect her. Then, ironically, after saying how much he respected her, Klein began to show his true colors. I love your ass, he wrote, and I want to taste it. Oh, my God. And then I love this because Phelps writes on. This is Phelps now again. If he had stopped there, it would have been seen as nothing more than a humorous gesture or personal compliment between two adults. But he continued. I love it. I'm like listening to this audiobook on the, treadmill. on the treadmill going, what? I want you to give me everything from inside of you. Then he said he realized he was probably sounding pretty disturbed by admitting to it. But I want to taste your ass after you've gone to the bathroom. I told you. Were you prepared? Um, these are just things you don't write down. <laughs> yeah, we're not kink shaming. No, it's like you just, you should just tell your partner. And you know, when you're thinking about affairs and murder, you should consider the fact that these love letters are being read in open court, everyone. These were read in court. Cocaine is a hell of a drug, babe. <laughs> oh, God. He then asked Beth Ann to burn the letter after reading. Unfortunately for him, she did not. And forgive him for what he was saying. Still, he felt the need to continue. He wrote next that he wanted Beth Ann to defecate on top of him. Afterward, he suggested he would spread it all over his chest. When he was done with this so-called human mud bath, he saw Beth Ann in a dominating role ordering him to take a shower. Okay, well, we see what kind of relationship this is. Yes, he admitted that their relationship had become probably more than it should be. I would say so, sir. I would say sir. So, sir. I would say sir. So, <laughs> sir. So, I can't even talk. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, yes, that's your unnecessary sexual context of uh, the true crime of love murder today. With that in mind, these conversations going on in this type of relationship. Now, that letter was from January 24th. By December of 1993, apparently that was, and, and Heyman talks later, so this is how we know. Beth Ann was so distraught about the Rebecca custody issue that she was testing Heyman on his love. He's obviously demonstrably telling her how much he loves her and showing her in as many ways. And she says, well, do you love me enough to kill somebody for me? And he said, no, I don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love yeah, he's like, no, I will, will not end a human life, even though I love you a lot. 
Even though I want to lick your ass after you go to the bathroom, I will not kill someone. <laughs> Which is, you know what, a very fair line. I think that's Standards. a great line. Standards. Yeah. yeah, boundaries, you know. So he says no. And she just falls apart. So she's crying hysterically. And she's like, my niece is being abused. And as long as that man is living, she's in danger. And my heart is broken. And I can't believe you won't kill for me. And he doesn't know what to do because he's so in love with her. So he says, okay, I won't kill for you, but I will pay somebody. Okay. That's not a boundary. That is not the line we wanted him to draw. No, that is not. I'm not proud anymore. (laughs) So at that point, this is when Heyman comes up with the brilliant idea to conscript his Coke dealer into murdering his lover's brother-in-law. Brilliant. Brilliant idea. I mean, she's technically his dom. It would seem like that's the situation, which is really interesting because a little uh, peekaboo for next episode is that we will be getting into the realm of subservience and dominance in sex play, BDSM. Another Valentine's Day episode. Another Valentine's Day episode. (laughs) You guys, we just are coming up with the the hits. Literally. Yeah, the spanks. So yeah, so he tells her, yes, he's going to do that. He approaches Mark, his Coke dealer, who is like 34 years old at this point. So fits in with the profile of this guy. And the two agreed that Heyman would pay him eight grand for the hit. And at that point, Heyman gave him $3,500 in cash as a down payment for the hit. He does stiff him later on. I don't think he ever got the rest of his money, to be honest. That's really not cool. Well, I, I think a lot of what Mr. Klein is doing here is not above board in any capacity. Mark eventually told the police that Beth Ann was present for at least one of their meetings. So he said at first, Heyman tried to keep Beth Ann out of it because he wanted, he was obviously an attorney. He wanted to isolate her from the hit just in case stuff went down, which it of course does. But Mark later says that he did talk to Heyman and that Beth was involved in one of their meetings in which she got information from her mother about exactly where the family was living, what his address was, what the side of his tow truck said. I saw another source that said that she provided a photo. So she definitely gave information, and Mark was willing to testify to that, that Beth Ann was absolutely involved in this murder-for-hire plot. So now that they've got... Mark, it doesn't seem like immediately because I think that Kathy, the informant, came forward the very end of May. Now, things are happening in their relationship. It is twisty, turny. I don't even know who's the dom, who's not in this situation anymore because when Heyman is with the Carpenters and they're getting questioned, apparently... She was pregnant with his babies. And I say babies because she was pregnant with twins, with Heyman's twins. That's insane. Insane. Now, it seems like he had ordered this hit because he wanted to make his mistress happy, who was seemingly his dominant mistress, and that he had done all of this for her. Well, she tells him that she's pregnant later on and that they're having twins and he needs to leave Bonnie. And marry her. And this, plus the stress of the murder, apparently starts breaking this couple up. Shocker. (laughs) Shocker. 
that murder isn't good for a relationship. So I guess that she miscarried one of the twins, but she was still carrying one of his babies. And that was when he was trying to create some distance between the two of them because he was concerned that he was going to be connected to this because they were bringing the heat down on her family, obviously. And Beth Ann was like, I'm carrying your baby and no, you're not going to do that. So while he's trying to create distance and change the relationship, she starts showing up at his house. Yikes. He went on a trip with his family and she made him stop at a roadside and screamed at him in front of Bonnie and their children. She told the kids at some dinner she showed up to being completely unhinged that she was pregnant with her father's baby and they were going to have a new sibling. Wow. Yeah, so things are getting crazy. So I take it he's not writing her letters anymore. <laughs> I think the letters had stopped at this point. Okay, okay. And he's probably re regretting a lot of things he said and a lot of things he did during this relationship. It seems like he didn't want to leave Bonnie anymore. And Bonnie now is aware of this relationship. She's having to deal with this. Their kids are dealing with this. In the book, Lethal Guardian, which is what the book is called. It's called Lethal Guardian by M. William Phelps. It's a great title. Lethal Guardian. He described how the children, or at least one of the children, knew what was going on. And when she would show up unannounced, they would take a slingshot and try to hit her with rocks from the slingshot. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So this situation was getting really bad. And as of June of 1995, they, I think, had realized at that point that Mark was in custody which means it was only going to be a matter of time before shit really hit the fan. And detectives told M. William Phelps, or at least he prefaced it in his book by saying detectives claimed that Bonnie took Beth Ann to get an abortion of the remaining baby. Wow. Yeah. So I don't know how much Bonnie knew. She was never implicated in this, obviously, but she was probably just trying to like manage what was going on in her home situation. And then after that, the relationship was very much done and the police were trying to extricate whatever they could and work out a deal with Mark. And at that point, Beth Ann takes a job in London. She gets like a six-month visa to work under somebody she knew in law school, I think, in London. So she's like out of the country. And they have more on Heyman, obviously. They have a lot of evidence about him paying Mark and they have Mark's testimony. So they go to interview Heyman and he realizes that he's in real big trouble. So he ends up like fleeing. He hits the road before they can officially arrest him. He's gone. He's in the wind. He's out of there. And they go to investigate him and they find out that for like the last two years, he's also been stealing from all of his clients. He was supposed to be investing money for real estate projects or doing different things for various long-term clients. And he had actually just emptied their accounts. He took all their money that he had any sort of control over. Okay. So Mark says, I need my lawyer. And they put two and two together. And then he just runs So this is, this is all had been happening in their relationship. Well, the heat's on and they're getting rid of the babies and he's staying with Bonnie and she was making plans to get out of the country. So she ended up hooking up with I think an old law school friend who was practicing immigration law, maybe in London. So she gets a six-month visa to go live and work in London. So she is like out of the country at this point by the time Mark is actually talking. So she's kind of like removed. 
she's out. She's out there. She's like, I'm out. I survived this whole situation. It's been 10 months. Now it's probably more like 11 months by the time they're locked in markdown with all these statements. She's living her best life. She's gone from this whole situation. And Haven Klein, of course, is getting notified that something is very wrong in this situation. And he needs to get the heck out of town. But lucky for him, he stole like millions of dollars from his clients. So he has a ton of money and cash to go on the road with. Good thing, you know. He really put that aside for a rainy day. Rainy day run from cops fund. Yeah, he stopped in Chicago where, where his eldest child, who is from his first marriage, was living. And he's like, here's a bunch of cash. Take some for yourself and send some to your stepmother. She's probably going to need it. And he just kept on rolling with all of his stolen cash. Oh, my God. Poor Bonnie. He has fled from justice. He's in the wind. And at that point, Scotland Yard is notified to keep an eye on Miss Beth Ann over there, who was also pissing people off because that's just what she does. She just does. She begged her boss to give her money to like emergency fly home to see her family for an emergency vacation. And instead, she went to the Canary Islands and had herself a nice little solo vacation. Stop. So she's pissing off people, too. So nobody likes Beth across the pond. They get her. And she's like, I had nothing to do with this. I found out only after the murder that my deranged lover had killed my brother-in-law I am an attorney. I was go wanting to go through the court system, obviously. Obviously, I was upset about this, but I had nothing to do with this. And I'm very upset about the whole arrangement. And they're like, yeah, we don't believe you. And she's like, well, I'll show you because I can probably get to Heyman and I will work with you and I'll be undercover and I'll help you capture him. And they were like, okay, we still don't believe you, but we're, we're willing to use you now to capture your co-conspirator. And so she was in communication with him and they had set up some system in which they communicated about when she should call various pay phones at what time so they could talk on the phone. And he had given her the information for a pay phone at a 7-Eleven in Long Beach, California. Oh my God. And she told them ahead of time where to be, which was on February 4th, 1996 which is when they saw him. They said he looked like he was an unhoused person because he was very unkempt. He did not look like the hotshot attorney he had once been. And he was on the phone with her when they got the signal and they moved in and they arrested him. And the last thing he said before they wrestled him to the ground and handcuffed him was, you set me up, didn't you? To Beth Ann. To Beth Ann because he was still on the phone with her. Wow. Yep. She sure did. She's sure shitting on you in some way, sir. Yeah. Sad you're not going to be able to taste it. Enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> the authorities did try to set up a deal with Heyman at that point, but he refused. He didn't want to turn on Beth Ann. He wanted to take his chances at trial. And they got all the way a month into jury selection before he said, yeah, never mind. <laughs> I'm going to take a deal and I'm going to roll on her. And that's why we have all these details about their relationship and how this whole murder plot was hatched was because both Mark and Heyman decided to take deals to turn on Beth Ann. And in the middle of all of this, by the way, her visa ran out and she ended up somehow in Ireland, but she could not work because she didn't have a working visa. So she was hired, like, I think under the table at a pub. So this once brilliant attorney 
is working at a pub in Ireland, but of course they track her down. The only issue is that Ireland will not extradite to countries that have the death penalty. I bet she knew that. Yes, of course she did. So they had to spend considerable amount of months working out the red tape and working out a deal, which was like we've seen in other countries that don't extradite to death penalty countries. Essentially, no matter what happens, if she's convicted, you cannot sentence her to the death penalty. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm fine that. with that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So she's finally back in the United States and her trial for first degree murder did not start till February of 2002, which was pretty much eight years after the murder of Buzz Clinton. So Mark, as well as his poor son, Chris, who had only been 15 at the time of the murder, testified at the trial, as did Heyman Clyde, of course, because that was part of the deal. Trisha, the wife of Rebecca's biological father, also testified about the things that she had said and the whole family wanting Buzz dead. Beth also, I, th I believe she took the stand in her own defense, but her defense essentially was that it was all Heyman that there was nothing really tying her to any order other than Mark's statement. So it's really could have gone either way. It's Mark and Heyman testifying that it was all her idea and that she was involved in it. There's not really any tight forensic evidence that she was the one ordering this hit, let's say. They don't find any emails from her to Mark or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So she says that... This guy is just clearly deranged. He was so obsessed with me. I was very upset about Rebecca for sure, but like not to the point where everyone's talking about it. I didn't ever want custody for myself. I wasn't obsessed with her. And I went to Europe afterwards to work. So if I was so obsessed with her and her well-being, I would have stayed and tried to get custody of her. She's saying this whole thing is blown out of proportion. And her family and her supporters very much believe her. They are 100% behind her. They think that this is Heyman and his drug dealer, hitman friend, rolling on Beth Ann to get better deals for themselves. Well, yeah, because Beth Ann's never done anything wrong in her life, in their eyes. Exactly. Exactly. It's like the scene from Parks and Rec with Jenny Slate. And she's talking to Henry Winkler. And it's like, Cause I've never, he's like, because you're an angel who's never done anything wrong your whole life. She's like, yes, daddy, money, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love her. Yes. So it's basically that. And so they are fully behind Beth. They think that she had nothing to do with this. And that's essentially what her attorney is saying, which is like, there's no hard evidence here. It's just the word of these guys who are getting deals to say so. Yeah. But why would they involve her if she wasn't involved? Yes. And basically, M. William Phelps says that he researched the heck out of this. He spent months and months, if not years on this case. And he said that it just seemed impossible. He talked to everyone who was involved in it. And it would have to be everyone was lying and conspiring against Beth because there was just too much evidence and her behavior of fleeing the country and everything. Yeah. He just said he concluded that there, there was no way possible because he wasn't going to publish an entire book about her guilt without being sure of her guilt. Of course. Yeah. And putting her on the cover. <laughs> putting this illustration of her fake her on the cover. The jury disagreed with Beth's defense attorney and family and seemed to agree with everybody else. And they found Beth Ann guilty of first degree murder. Obviously, the death penalty had been taken off the table, but she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility wow. of parole. Wow. Wow. 
her lover and erstwhile boss, Heyman Klein, disbarred attorney no longer at law, was given 35 years in exchange for his testimony. He was released after serving 22 years in 2019 for good behavior. I also heard, it was in a newspaper article, In the Day, and it was by Karen Florin, that he has expressed remorse to a now grown-up baby Brianna. So he very much regrets what he did and being involved in what essentially took a father away from multiple children. Did Kim have the other baby? Yes. So Kim did have the other baby. It was a little boy, and it was Anson B. Clinton the fourth. Cute. And Brianna said that her little brother has the hardest time with this because he sure. was— negative two months when his father was murdered and had, he has zero pictures with his father. He has, like, even though Brianna was only eight months old, there's something. some record. Yes. You know, yeah, there's yeah, something. Yeah. And he has nothing. It's a very rough situation. He gets very upset. The first eight months, if you hear, like, or if you're, both your parents are around, that leaves an impression on you for sure. Yeah, even if you can't really remember it, there's, like, these impressionistic memories so the trigger man, Mark Dupre, was sentenced to 45 years in prison. He is still incarcerated in Connecticut. Beth has maintained her innocence, and she has tried to appeal several times. I believe she has now exhausted her appeals. So she is, I believe, stuck in prison for the rest of her life. Her family, for the most part, still very much believes in her innocence. And M. William Phelps wrote in his book, too, in, in this like epilogue that when he does book signing, sometimes he's harassed by followers of Beth who still believe in her innocence and think that he is a hideous lie monger. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's been harassed by people uh, about this book. And this article for the day in 2014 came out by Karen Florin, and it featured the grown-up sisters now, Rebecca and Brianna. And they're very close. They love one another. But they have had to agree to disagree, which is that Rebecca thinks that her aunt is innocent and that it was just a deranged Heyman Klein. And Brianna has talked to both her aunt and Heyman Klein and visited them both in prison. And she said that she thinks that her aunt was guilty of what she was convicted of. I can totally see how Rebecca can't see that she could be guilty. And I think that that's so mature that both of them are able to have a relationship and agree to disagree. Yeah, even Brianna said that when they went to a hearing about the appeal, that, of course, like the Clinton side of the family was on one side and the Carpenter's side was on the other. And she's actually close to her mother's side of the family. But in that circumstance, she was like, I hope I can still come to the lunch later, but I'm going to sit on the other side because I still think my aunt is guilty. So it sounds like... Both sides are being more mature when the grown children are involved than they were when these children were babies. And it's because of the children. It's because of how the children are handling this, to be honest. So Brianna said that she was deprived of her father and her life has been very difficult as a result. I know that as of 2014, she was also married to a much older man that some people were saying might have something to do with not having her father in her life. And by much older, I mean like 40 years older. But who knows? She also could just be in love with him. Yeah, exactly. It's also, she said, as, as difficult as my life has been, it's been much harder for my little brother. 
So definitely wishing all of those children and their children, because they're, I think most of them are parents by now, lots of healing, because obviously this is something that doesn't just affect one generation, it trickles down. During the Fatal Feuds episode, I also watched, there's, guys, there's a bunch of shows about this case. There's uh, Blood Relatives. There's a show called In Plain Sight. But I did find that the, the newest episode, which came out, I think, last December, called Fatal Family Feuds. It was the first episode of the whole series was about this case called The Tragic Tale of Buzz Clinton. And William Phelps is on it, and he says, at the end of the day, Buzz and Kim did the right thing. They were trying to do the right thing. They were going through the court system. They were trying to figure out how they could exist as a family together. And they were not given the opportunity to see if they could survive. And Buzz wasn't, he was only 28 years old. And it sounds like he was a very, like his mother said, and sadly his mother has since passed, a complex individual. And he wasn't allowed to become what I think could have been a very good father. Yeah. In conclusion, we're getting towards Valentine's Day here, people. I think we should all be a little careful about what kind of uh, sexual fantasies we're writing in our love letters or emails or texts or God, any anything where you're putting that down. Yeah, anything. And also let's like maybe lay off the coke a little bit if you're <laughs> in your 50s and you have a family to take care of. Just and in general, lay, lay off the coke and the uh, incredible amounts of alcohol, especially when you're running a failing business. Maybe you should get your head out of the out of that and into the game, out of the butt cheeks and into the game. As always, trust your gut when it comes to love so your dirty, filthy love letters aren't read in court. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Bye, Whoa. guys. Thanks Bye. for listening. <laughs>